just gives me so much hope. It, uh, we, I think we can turn around the world's problems in, in agriculture, and some people say really fast. Joel reckons in 10 years we can sequester all the carbon back in the ground if we begun, you know, with our, with our herbivores. And it's the thing we've just got to begin, not be worried what the neighbours think, not be worried what the fertiliser rep thinks, you know. The boys at the pub, doesn't matter what they think, you know. That was Jody Roebuck, and this is Duggan, the podcast. Welcome to episode 59 of Dug It with Jody Roebuck from Roebuck Farms. I first came across Jody on a country calendar episode where he was running in front of these sheep and the sheep were following along. So rather than being a predator and trying to scare or push the sheep as to where he wanted them to go, he would lead the way and they would follow. And he's leading the way in so many ways in farming and sustainability and soil health and education. He's a leading figure in biointensive farming and the future of farming around the world, teaching amazing workshops and working with some of the pioneers in the field, uh, many of whom he mentions in the podcast and you can find them all in the show notes as well as the link to the country calendar episode It really is worth watching. And in the episode he shows all the great contraptions he uses to, to wash, to harvest, to grow the vegetables, to make it not just sustainable but profitable as well which um, is a great message. He talks about it's tough to be green if you're in the red. <laughs> and I love that sentiment that to be sustainable, we've got to look after yourself so you can look after the planet. And it really comes back to soil health and gardening and farmers for the health of everyone. There's a great uh, recent UN report uh, which says a shift towards local small-scale farming and food systems is really the only way to go. And there's great research to show that organic farming is four times, up to four times more productive than industrial farming. And I know the work of Ben Warren, he says, if, you know, if the nutrients aren't in the soil, then it can't be in the food and it can't be in us. And there's a great quote by Wendell Berry that the soil is the great connector of our lives, the source and destination of all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we can have no life. I think that's so true. We're in the Western world quite disconnected from where we come from and where our food comes from and uh, connecting back with nature and farmers and shopping locally and organically really is the best place to start. And hopefully this episode will inspire you to do just that and to perhaps start up a little veggie garden of your own. It really is such a holistic approach. And I know in New Zealand we've got a lot of issues with dairy and industrial farming and Jody really puts it all into perspective. So without further ado, here is the man himself, Mr. Jody Roebuck. on there 
Um, well, thanks for taking the time, Jody. I mean, we're both uh, from Taranaki, love surfing, design, quality mm-hmm. food, and I saw your um, country calendar episode, loved it, all the tools you had created, and um, I've got big into farming through the likes of Ben Warren and looking at, you know, if it's not in the soils, it can't be in the food and it can't be in you, so... Um, really passionate about that space and, and you're obviously doing pioneering work in that uh, you what do you call it biointensive farming like what is it what does that mean to the common common person how would you describe what you do well I guess it's a it's a it's a, a bit of a blanket term but the it's a you know merge of the French intensive and the biodynamic originally and um, with the I guess the last 30 years the the small intensive market garden movement uh, uh, jumped on that name too but we're um, permanent beds, um, deep soil structure. We do a lot of composting. Um, that's kind of the, the model of it. And intensive planting, a lot of food in a small space. Yeah, and, and you mentioned um, that you can't be green if you're in the red. And so you're big about <laughs> – I just love that as a, as a sentiment because, I mean, there's, there's so many people who are passionate about sustainability and doing the right things and – but often it's at the detriment to your own financial health, and um, and like it's not sustainable in the long run. So how have you managed to uh, make it work as a as a as a business? Because you're doing workshops, you're selling your produce at the garden, at the market, farmers markets, into restaurants. I mean, um, how's it all kind of aligned for you? Um, so I've been farming now nearly twenty five years, and I've worked in a lot of different realms. Um, influenced by a lot of different farmers but currently our, our current focus is the market garden and we're marketing really um, baby salads um, microgreens and baby root veg there's a lot of other aspects to the business but this is the the uh, most financial aspect aspect of the business um, and again again I've worked with a lot of the you know the leaders in the movement but w- one of them that was really influential was Curtis Stone the urban farmer in Kelowna and he, he's really big on the Prado principle. We, we, I haven't really looked into it too much, but he worked out after tracking all of his field numbers that 80% of his income came from 20% of his customers. 80% of his income came from 20% of his crops. What has been really influential that Curtis has done, because he was turning over 120000 on third of an acre in a six-month growing season. Now, those numbers are good. Uh, that's turnover. He has crop, developed a crop rating value, and so he's um, basically very focused on fast days to maturity crops and and uh, high value, multiple cut, popular. Um, there's one other thing on his checklist, but basically by checking in on his crops and giving them a five point checklist and giving each crop a point each, he basically rated them and got rid of what wasn't um, paying the bills for him, and he's got it down to about 16, 18 crops. So I've worked with him both at home and abroad on his farm. We, and he's been very influential with other farmers too. And we just followed his lead. Um, and three years in with the, you know, ma- marketing baby salad, um, we've just won three awards every week is the biggest week of the farm, uh, of the, you know, biggest week financially. Um, really enjoying it. We set up a really good washroom. And it's it's the you know my joke is I, I, I'm going to get a full test full chest tattoo of um, DTM which is days to maturity. Um, 
that won't happen, but it's actually that important to us tracking how fast things grow and watching them slow down over winter and speed up again in summer. So, you know, the the crops that are most profitable are microgreens. Um, they were as fast as four and a half days in summer. At the moment, they're six days. They'll go out to maybe eight or nine days in winter. Um, pea shoots, we do them in the field. They're 12 days. Mustard and mizuna, we direct sow them and cut them with a greens harvester. They got as fast as 18 days in summer. They are now already around 40, 40 days to grow as we head. We're now 50 days away from the shortest day. So um, my motto is um, just keep planting. We just got our, our list of 18 crops and we just keep sowing it. Um, they're high value. Um, and I think one thing that I'm really enjoying is that, you know, first I've outlined what quality of life I want to head towards. And my, my quality of life is improving uh, as the more we get the farm developed. But I'm also um, I'm really big on having creating flexibility into your um, your program so that um, you know the last thing I want to do is lie in bed at night counting up do I have enough beds of mizuna? Can I supply my my retail outlets? We we really love retail. Um, and so by having creating yourself buffers and in, in, in your processes. Um, We've created a zero waste policy, and I, I, when I say zero waste, I mean we never produce food that we end up throwing out. We always find a home for it, and we have a given with some of the restaurants, but the retail outlets will take a number of different style salads from us. So for, once we've filled our restaurant orders, we have this choice of that's a given from what the field gives us as to what kind of salads are we going to make today to go into retail. And we just keep our retail um, full. We've got a fish shop, meat shop, and a Mediterranean supermarket that sell on behalf for us, and we just love them. Yeah, that's so, um, that's so fantastic. I was just listening to a, a, a guy talk about maca, uh, the kind of turnip that's growing in high in the hills and I think it's Peru, but how they'd have like a I think like a seven or five year uh, soil turnover. Like it was, and I was really interested in that that mix of the modern and the ancient techniques and how do you keep the soil health. And I mean, what's exciting yeah. for you in that space? Because you're saying, you know, we can get hooked onto like uh, certain trendy words, like even you were talking about organic certification before, but really it's about the soil health and trying to. And, and progressively move forward and use these new techniques. I mean, you seem to be right the pioneer of um, of what's happening there. Is there anything that's really exciting for you at the moment? Um, well, I guess I guess the principles, you know, our byline, um, so we're, we're Roebuck Farm, and it took me a long time to, to work out our byline is agrarian innovation. So that, um, you know, all, all the best um, of the past, you know, millennia of, of, of farming with the new, um, new, te new technology, including – you know, the phone, social media, um, but also some of the small tools we're using, they're just game changers. Like for the half million Kiwis that saw us on Country Calendar last June, what was that, you know, nearly a year ago, we already completely got a different style of production with the microgreens because of two two small tools that we're using. One is a drop seeder. It's a Perspex box with two plates in it that are offset. They've got little holes in them. You shake the seeds on top of it. You, you push the top plate across and the holes line up and they drop the seed onto the tray. The other tool is a greens harvester, which is a blade at the front of this catcher 
it's run off a battery drill, so we, we're harvesting the microgreens with that too. Both of these tools are not designed for microgreens. But, you know, a bit of cross-pollination and a bit of multi-purpose, and suddenly uh, it's like tenfold more um, efficient now for us with our microgreens production. And the other thing with the microgreens too is that's a real buffer for us because um, they're so fast. We can just do – we do three sowings a week now with them, so that, again, gives us more flexibility. Back to your question about soil health, um, that's always been our focus and, you know, in the old days, um, really focusing on sustainability. Um, one of our, I guess, um, our mantra is keep your covered, soil covered at all times. Public enemy number one is bare soil. And we do that by intensive planting. Uh, we also use a lot of different fabrics on the farm that allow us to, to be organic. We use insect netting uh, uh, stretched over hoops over top of all our baby brassicas. Now that's, um, again, a multi-purpose thing or a multi-purpose strategy where uh, that's how we grow baby mizuna, mustard, Tokyo turnip, radish, um, without the, you know, the white butterfly annihilating them. But it also is a buffer in, in weather extremes, which is the new norm. Big wind is like a wind barrier and protects them. Heavy rain, it, it, stop, it mitigates the heavy rain. So um, fabrics and like insect netting or 70% shade net, we put that on the ground over direct seeded seed. It's, that's my mobile mulch. It allows a fast germination, stops the heat or the heavy rains, um, you know, wrecking the crop in one weather event. Uh, also, the other process of one of my other mentors, Jean-Martin Fortier, the market gardener from Quebec, he has popularized um, the tarping phenomena, which is we do um, our cover crops, we chop and drop in situ, and then we tarp with a, like a dark, black, heavy-duty tarp, and every, the worms come in under, have a party, and everything composts in place. Because a couple of key things, JM, or Jean Martin Fortier um, has made apparent is um, along with farming's hard work, but the one thing you don't have on the farm that's time, and so we need to be time efficient. And tarping really helps with that. And the other one that he talks about is um, that forty percent of your work is harvest and post harvest. So we we really we think our background is in building soil structure. Um, you know, we do a lot of composting and, and improving the soil as we go. But for us, it wasn't a viable model until we stacked in, you know, um, the influences from Curtis Stone and Jean-Martin Fortier, many others in there too. But uh, these, these two guys have really um, supported us and a lot of other farmers and uh, making a world of difference. It's amazing the... Um innovation and and having those metrics i think it's just fascinating that you're mentioning before from curtis stone but i guess there's people who are really into farming and and learning about this and you're providing workshops and their education but also there's like a big disconnect with people that buy their food and that you know 50 percent of people used to be farmers and now it's like two percent or and so there's a giant disconnect where, where do you think most people like go wrong in terms of undervaluing the farmer and and where the produce comes from because uh, you've got a design background as well so you must see like a bigger 
some other issues there as well in terms of education or or do you think it's just lack of consciousness or or the model needs to shift um well, I think you know. So I've been I've been blessed to do a lot of traveling, see a lot of production, and a lot of different climates. Um, we so we're in Taranaki, the west coast of New Zealand. I really believe the the local food movement is here, and it's not a trend; it's here to stay. And it's a whatever, a, maybe a, um, a you know a response to how we've been farming the last hundred and twenty years that people, uh, you know, Joe Citizen is as seeking out good, a good food and. You know, I guess I, maybe this is one a couple one of my measures with the 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 rise of the local food movement. Uh, I really believed or was told um, in the past that if you're in small ag, small scale agriculture, you've got to meet the middle person in every every step of the way. You know, you've got to be the producer, the marketer, um, you've got to be the farmers market, and so on. In Taranaki especially, we don't have strong farmers markets like nearly every other town in New Zealand have. Um, it's, they're really at the hobby scale, and we we are at two markets. But our we are, I'm really enjoying being in retail. We've got three shops in town that sell on behalf for us, and that's where the the bulk of our revenue come from. Um, and it's a it's a what do you how would I say it? Our products are complementary to theirs so we're drawing in customers for them like the fish shop at Egmont Seafoods mm. they host only independent fishery between Auckland and Wellington they wholesale distribution but their shop they're 1400 customers a week they brought us a fridge we've got a salad in there we always have a great relationship with them they're just so easy to work with we just keep the shop constantly stocked same with the meat shop in town TLC Meats same thing you know so it's um, people, uh, it's the whole taste the difference thing, regardless mm. of what what the food is. Um, and I think people are getting excited by it. Um, the restaurants too. That we've got uh, about five restaurants on our books. Um, they've got a name on on the restaurant uh, on the menu. Sorry, and yeah, they're they're great to work with. Uh, so the next where where our next direction is. Um, just to keep expanding, increase our production without too much more area. We're putting up some new polytunnels. But I can see the potential to double our farm income and to double it again, um, keeping it under an acre. And we're, we've already lined up to um, supply Pack and Save New Plymouth with salads and microgreens. But we're, we reckon we're 18 months away from that. We're going to put up a big polytunnel first. But really, the reason I'm so excited about that one is to make – you know, local food, the new norm. That's, uh, yeah, that's so great. I remember catching up with Toby from Kaiteki Farms too and their pickup stations and that's so neat. You're working with, uh, you know, Keith Mawson from Ingmont Seafoods and, and to be able to buy local and know the people it's coming from is, um, yeah, that's so neat. How do you, how do you uh, try and add value to, to, your product, you know, if it's not people expect to pay a little bit more for organics or um, like, is there a price point? Because you'd have to be more expensive than just commercially raised farmed food, wouldn't you? Depend, um, great question. It depends on the crop and where the outlet is. Um, so I, w- I won't name any of the big providers, but one of the big providers in town that supply one of our favorite restaurants um, 
there's a well, there's a national shortage on baby carrots at the moment, and Social Kitchen award winning um, restaurant in town. We we really like working with them. They approached us a while back for carrots, and we said we didn't didn't have the volumes, but we do now, and we we match the large scale um, price or you know the big egg price. Um, but you know what? And and it's, it's a good price. They're, they're getting seventeen fifty five a kilogram for baby carrots plus just. Um, so we we match that with our carrots, but they can't match the the flavour and the quality and the um, shelf life of what what we're producing. I'm not out to knock uh, any type of production here. All farmers are my friends, but you can't pe- compare hydroponics with field grown. You know you can't compare sprayed food with non sprayed food. And it's back, again, again, taste the difference. Uh, I think that should be the Taranaki motto for, for our region. Um, so, the, yeah, Blair, the chef at Social Kitchen, was just blowing out with our carrots. Um, the quality, how they how they last during the cooking process and, and serve, obviously, the flavor too. So, in, in that sense, we're matching the price. Hydroponic salad greens that are in the supermarket, we are a little more expensive than that, but not much. But, you know, our, again, they can't match our shelf life. Our, our customers' feedback, all of them, is our, our salads last nearly two weeks. Um, so it's, you know, again, growing organically with compost. Um, we, do, we, 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 grow, we make all our own seed raising mix, do all our own propagation. Um, and I guess the other, you know, the next step from after we've grown it, it's the today's harvest day on the farm. It's the harvest post-harvest process, and as Jean-Martin Fortier says, that's 40% of your work. We built, um, having seen other people's washrooms, a fantastic washroom that um, is, that's the key for us to uh, be producing high-quality salads and that last, and it's a washing, drying, storage process that's key. So first thing in the morning, we harvest lettuce, but it's got a sap in it that's bitter before the sap rises. Then we're in the greenhouse with the greens harvester cutting all the microgreens, then we're back out in the field cutting the pea shoots and all the auxiliary greens like rocket, baby kale, mustard mizuna. We bring that all into the tiller, then back out into our – we've got a spa bath to wash all of the greens in and we, we spin it and dry it um, you know, by, by hand, grading the whole way. And and we have a choice of different mixes that we can put together too. Um, and so the post-harvest thing is, is really key to us. And I know people. I know there's a lot of people that don't have that set up, and that you know we have farmers that come here from all around the world, and they say, "Yeah, we used to, you know, it was four acre market garden we're harvesting in the field uh, and washing and processing in the field, but that's not efficient, you know." And again, I'm not saying this is easy to make an income, but it is absolutely achievable. And the easiest way to start is with fast days to maturity, high value crops. Yeah. I mean, there are there are a lot of those. So. Love it there, and and on the, the the packaging part, how do you where do you see any innovation or because um, I know like Bostock's chickens are trying to do home compostable packaging, and people are, have you seen much development in that space, or what? Do you, how do you guys work? We're kind of uh, watching that one with interest. There's a lot of development in that space at the moment. We think it's not going to be long till there's lots of options for for lots of products to be packaged with um, you know compostable um, products. The, so currently we're still conventional, um, 
and the shelf, you know, that's again a big part of the shelf life with our salads. We can see within 12 months there's going to be lots of opportunities. It's a big conversation at the moment. Um, the other one, in terms of plastic, we've chosen not to use any plastic row covers on our um, our red path low tunnels. We're just using insect net, just because of the wind load, and and also we've stuck because you know the, the business is growing. We're using a lot of seed raising mix with with um, you can only buy that in in, in plastic bags. We've mm. we're committed to making our own, which is uh, again plastic free. So. We're very lean. The farm runs um, on on minimal inputs, uh, especially the grazing system. There's zero in, zero outside inputs there, and uh, yeah, we just won three awards last last month. The for our leaves and shoots salad, we got a gold medal at the Outstanding uh, Food Producers Awards in Auckland, and we won the Sustainability Award there too, which. Um, that, that is a, a, a you know a, a great achievement. We're pretty, we're thrilled, and because I love I love my grazing. Also, we we also just got um, the, an award for people in the primary sector at the Balance Fertilizer Sustainability Awards, and we're up against some large scale you know phenomenal sheep and beef farms with that uh, and that that award. So um, the food landscape is changing really fast. The challenges of the environment uh, are not cha- not um, given up. I see that all around the world. You know, it's heaviest rains, biggest winds, longest droughts, all that stuff. But there's ways to farm through it, and yeah, we've just got to keep being, uh, you know, innovative and rather than set in our ways. Um, and that's what I'm enjoying about the small scale market garden movement at the moment. It's just the it's just moving so fast. You know the the tool development, and these are very small-scale tools, um, the cross-pollination of ideas and strategies between farmers, our harvesting of our microgreens with the greens harvester. I picked up a little trick from a farmer in Oregon, and he just put up a post on social media, and I was just like, thank you so much. It's just <laughs> changed changed our production overnight, one little tip. So, you know, farming, you've never learned at all. You're never going to. That's what I like about it. And even just if I was only market gardening, we're also grazing as well. But, you know, if I go back to my orchard work 20 years ago, I was just doing repetitive repetitive work and injuries, um, doing the same work for four months, the same, you know, up mm. a tree, fill your bin with ladder, down the tree, fill the bin, up the tree. Uh, there's a value in, in, in uh, working at that scale and, and learning discipline and, Learning the, um, you know the the production, but I really enjoy working on my farm where it's um my my whole my day is very diverse. You know I might be sowing microgreens, I might be sowing crops in the field, I might be cropping out, harvesting, I might be in the washroom. Um, you know the R and D and development goes on too. Currently we're putting up a new greenhouse. We've just finished our farm shop on site. Um, there's always something new ahead mm. of us. And and the jobs, you know, the tasks. Some of them are hard work, but we're never. I'm never doing the same job for three months. <laughs> what? It's more three hours. <laughs> yeah, kind of on that point. What do you think your kind of um, superpower or gift or gift is in that space? Is there one thing? Is it assimilating this knowledge and applying it? Is it, uh, you know, being having such a holistic approach? Is it helping lead 
and teach people. Um, yeah, um, that's a. I haven't. That's a. I haven't been actually asked that asked that before in that in that uh, in that way. But I think you know. I I do acknowledge. Um, I'm I'm always surprised. I've been teaching now over twenty years and and all around the world. Um, I think uh, being ergonomic, looking after your body while you work, that's my continual surprise with farmers of all ages. Um, being you know whatever you want to call it, Pilates, yoga, uh, martial arts, but incorporating that into every activity rather than it being a separate class. That that's my take on it. And also just cross-pollination, I, I pride myself on um, uh, getting on with all farmers of all, all walks of life all around the world, you know, large-scale conventional, small-scale alternative, um, weird, normal, big, small, there's something to learn off everyone. And, you know, a, let's say conventional grazier, my, my first, in a, at an introduction, my first questions are going to be, you know, what, what are the breeds that you run? Uh, this is an open-end question. The second question is: Your family involved? Um, and so, you know, next thing, they're cooking your farm lunch, offering you a beard, and um, sharing their stories. And you've created a um, a space where they're open. They feel comfortable to talk to you, rather than oh no, I'd never approach a farmer and, and point the finger. Are you organic? Or why do you do this or that? It's not because they've got something to teach me. And it's so, ears on, always learning. Um, and pulling in strategies from other other types of production that you know have um, come together on our farm and passing that on. I'm, I'm open book with our knowledge, and I acknowledge those that I've learned learnt with. I've had some pretty op, uh, awesome opportunities to um, work work with farmers all around the world. And you know, I made radio um, as we're doing now. Years ago, I made a program interviewed all these farmers and the same thing kept coming up from all these different style um, farmers how do I work luckier I am keep it simple stupid and if you want something done you got to ask someone who's busy that kept coming up so you know and I've, I've found this something really really strong in that so see so yeah, I'm off to Australia next week and I'm the uh, I never did any public talking right through school managed to avoid that but I'm I've been doing a lot of it the last 15 years I'm the main keynote speaker straight after Joel Salatin at a big farm-to-plate event in, in Brisbane. Um, Joel's been a mentor of mine for for years, so it's you know um, it's pretty cool when your mentors become your friends. And yeah. and yeah, the the other thing I think, uh, and this is a human thing. I don't know why we're like this, but I, I really believe humans have to have a crisis before they seek out innovation. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, so, you know I think we we are we I won't I think there's some crises around in agriculture but I think we're generally um, looking to do a good job. All farmers re, you know really are aware of their landscape I think and what and you know looking after their animals, especially those that are um, I don't know where it's their livelihood. I'm not saying all all farming is is spectacular. But the potential in New Zealand, like I, from what I've seen around the world and some of the driest parts, you know, I, th- I, I kind of agree with Jean-Martin Fortier. He, in some ways, you know, he called um, New Zealand the, the Lamborghini parked in the garage. Um, I believe we can have more grazing animals in New Zealand to, um, to, to, to regenerate the land. Um, one one real key thing there is um, people don't actually know what overgrazing is, 
and it's nothing to do with animal numbers. It's the age of the grass we're grazing on. And so on a, on a more rested pasture, you've got a lot of forgiveness in your whole program. You've got food ahead of yourself. You've got um, uh, a protection and drought, protection and heavy runoff. You've got the ability to increase your stocking density, trample your grass, the surplus grass down, um, and increase your fertility, uh, promote the seed that's in the ground to germinate, diversify your pasture. These are all things I've seen abroad and we've, we've brought back home and implemented. Um, we have zero facial eczema in our sheep. Um, I'm really big on, on low-stress stock handling. Uh, and that's not the norm, unfortunately. So so much so, people calling me the sheep whisperer. Well, it's that's the you know thanks, but actually that's just the um, the the basic principles of low stress stock handling. So yeah. really um, like to see more stacked enterprises. You know, every dairy farm I believe could have a a market garden, and and you know we can generally added value our agriculture a bit more, and and you know people back on farm. Instead of the old farmer curmudgeon, solo, solo dad, don't do what I did, son, get off the farm, there's no job here for you. Well, I really believe there's, there's potential for lots of incomes off, off, off the, the same landscape. And it's a great antidote to the stress of city life and, and all the social media overwhelm. And, and oh, you got such a great holistic approach. I remember going full kind of vegan, and I think you went that way too. And yeah, you know, as, as a reaction against factory farming and and processed food, and then and then you kind of realise, well, soils don't grow very well if there's no animal protein in them, and 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 everything works in harmony, and animals are part of that and have been part of that forever. And um, I think it's so great how you got the sheep and 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 such a sustainable holistic model. Um, is there? I mean, where can people start is is there any place you'd love to point them is it your workshops is it uh growing veggies at home is it where do you like to send people if they're starting this journey yeah it depends where where they're starting from but yeah we um so we do run education with um last year we ran 25 sold out events five of them were abroad um we're 2,000 people through the farm last year so we're really big on we're open book really big on passing on um you know, what, what we've been able to learn also. Uh, but, you know, j- this is a quote from Joel Salatin, the world's most innovative farmer, and he says, you know, if you, you've just got to take the first step and it, it's up to you because until you've taken the first step, you can't take the second or third. And so with a garden, just start. It doesn't matter if it's wrong. There is not much wrong that can go wrong, but just begin. And the easiest way to begin actually is to just tarp an area, whether it's carpet uh, or, you know, black plastic, Kill out the grass, let the let time do the work for you, and then begin with a new, you know, a, a one garden bed, three garden beds, and do a little but do it well, and you know, set yourself a basic goal of growing more food in the same area of higher quality each year. That's absolutely possible. Um, we it's like grazing. I I grew up in town surfing. I'd, ne- I'd had a few friends with farms, but I'd never. Um, raised animals myself and now um, you know 15 years in um, key part of what we do and uh, we, we really enjoy it and we've been um, especially with grazing sheep yeah seeing we've captured a lot of attention around around the world that um, it's fun really enjoy really enjoy the herbivores 
Yeah, they've got four stomachs or a sauerkraut bed on legs. So if um, what's it saying? It's not the cow, it's the how. And that's um, you know, I'm I'm really with that one that the the animals can do harm to the landscape or or they can regenerate the landscape. It's our choice, and as just just management time, you know, the timing of our grazing and the the age of the grass and the stocking density. Pretty much, the more you move them, the better. The the more um, the more positives you're going to see. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So people can find you at Roebuck Farms and your workshops are all online. I see you got one in Bali. I'm, I'm going to be over there at the same time. Hopefully I can get along. Are there any other um, great books? You mentioned the mentors, Curtis Stone, John Martin, and Joel Salatin. Is anyone else uh, books, mentors, movies, uh, things that you'd yeah, well, I mean, we could do a, we could do a, a, another podcast just about that. But yes, there is um, movies. Polly Faces. That's with an S. Um, that's a, a story about Joel Salatin's farm and why it's successful. And it's, it's it's because of how they're farming, but they're really a successful because of the relationships they have. Phenomenal um, movie. Another movie by Jean-Martin Fortier. It's about market gardening on an acre and a half. It's called The Market Gardener's Toolkit. And a few other um, farmers, uh, the godfather of market gardening, Elliot Coleman, Four Season Farm. If you're in a cold environment or want to be growing in winter, check out his stuff. He's an author. He's on YouTube. Kay Baxter in New Zealand, Kohanga Institute. Um, you know, reviving all our heritage seed and fruit trees, uh, doing a, a lot of a lot of work for for many decades. Yeah, there's lots of, and and another grazier from Missouri. This guy will warm your heart. His name's Greg Judy, J U D Y. His story of transforming, nearly losing the farm, nine dollars in the checkbook. He now owns seven of his fourteen farms. He leases the other seven. Just um, can't not but like that guy. Amazing. And just a little note on the seeds because, uh, I mean, there's a big issues with Monsanto transitioning yeah. Indian. Are they, are, are, I heard that 270,000 Indian farmers committed suicide in the last kind of 20 years from, and a lot of it seems to be with pressure of being forced to use GMO seeds and then not being able to afford the sprays and then having their land destroyed. And um, you, I know you're big into preserving seeds and that seems like something that's, I don't think people realize probably the importance of um, heritage seeds and and what what kind of work are you doing in that space and what do people need to be aware of? That's that's been seeds have been my background since you know two thousand when I apprenticed with them and we brought our land to to grow heritage seed and we we did for for a decade. Um, I I just never had the business sense to actually market them and so we. I won't say we wound it down. We're still growing some of our heritage um, crops through to seed. But to be honest, what I've learned from the fast days to maturity vegetable crops and have it creating like a, a crop rating value um, for the leafy greens or for the, for the market garden, I'm now looking back to see, wow, I think, you know, next summer we can stack in this, the heritage seed model and I know it'll be the top most popular 12 varieties for the home gardener. You know, tomatoes, cucumbers, um, just all the classics, pumpkin, peppers. Rather, you know, in the back in the past, I'd grown a whole lot of um, just hundreds and hundreds of different types of crops. So through my apprenticeships, where crops that I don't see them becoming 
um, home scale commercial, you know, like, uh, are you going to grow Ethiopian teff in your backyard? It's a, the, it's a grain, you know, uh, or, um, or, you know, there's, there's all of these grains and weird and wonderful stuff. So coming back right full circle after 20 years of growing seed, I'm, I'm super excited to be, uh, return to growing the heritage vegetable seed, applying that rating value to it and looking at what are the crops that are popular with the home gardener um, that are easy for us to grow because half of the seed crops need isolation because they will cross-pollinate like a carrot. And so there's a lot of diversity within a carrot variety because it's hard to stabilize it as within an F1. That's why F1s are so popular. Um, takes a year and a half to grow a carrot seed. Wow. That's a lot of days to maturity. takes nine months to grow um, lettuce seed. Uh, I am more interested in that one. So we will probably be looking at crops that are popular, crops that um, don't cross-pollinate, um, that are shorter days to maturity, and we're, we're pretty excited. We think there's a business model in there, so it's kind of to be continued with that one. But the, um, the opportunity to grow heritage seed and make an income from it, I think is only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's more people growing. It's harder and harder to get the seed. So as we develop the market garden, yes, we're still doing heritage seed, but we're also now buying in a lot of seed. You know, we're doing seed saving, but we we buy in a lot of seed from about seven or eight different companies. Um, and it's, you know, we run the farm lean, but our biggest our biggest running cost for the farm is seed. Yeah, love it. I look forward to seeing, uh, watching that space. And... Um, and just mindful of your time, uh, I've been reading Michael Pollan's book on, on opening your mind all about psychedelics and mushrooms and how the, you know, uh, what the plants do talking to each other. And is there any, um, any kind of interesting facts that people may disagree with you on or that, you know, you've, you've come across in your years, years experience farming and gardening and, and meeting so many amazing people? Oh, interesting question. Um, uh, you know, I guess coming back to the grazing, I just think there's this there's this idea that um, you know there's we've got too many cows in New Zealand or too too many animals. It's it's not it's, it's not it's not correct. If we, I will finish up with this one. Um, so if we, you know, we're re, I'm really big in focusing on natural patterns, and you know, nature's been around longer than new school agriculture. And so if we, just with grazing, for example, if we're um, um, following nature's model, animals mob for safety because of the predator. So the predator drives the whole um, landscape or ecology, if you like. And so they mob for safety. There used to be a billion bison in the U.S. They mob for safety. They move regularly. And in that movement, they're, tr they're trampling the surplus vegetation. That's giving um, two things happening. The, the root system, the grass is getting eaten, squashed, trampled to the ground, so they're mulching the landscape. That's building organic matter, and it's massaging the ground, promoting the, the seed bank in the ground to germinate, and the root systems are deeper, and they're pulsing and building organic matter. That's how the prairie lands were built, the relationship you know, between the herbivores and the, and the, and, and the grass. And then, uh, and then there's quite some time in the recovery period till they return, and they're followed by birds. That's why the Kiwis on the hip of the sheep on our logo, that's the 
you know, the symbiotic, the regenerative model. So, um, yeah, for me, I got asked a similar question in Quebec by a, the permaculture orchardist, and he he said, "What's the most unusual thing you've seen in agriculture?" And I was stunned. I hadn't, I didn't know. And I thought about it. the next day. You said, I, I thought about it. And I said, "You know, Stefan, it's you guys in Quebec. You've got this. It's a prairie land. You should see the grass there." And there's so much policy and restriction up there with um, with animal systems that all the animals are indoors 24-7. But the, the dairy industry in Quebec, they live inside. Those cows live indoors for 365 days of the year. And the potential outside is phenomenal. And I'll bring it back to New Zealand. Um, in 2014, Joel Salatin gave a, a, a full-day class in Auckland to 200 people, a lot of farmers there. And one farmer stood up and said, you know, Joel, you're talking about rotational grazing and using an electric fence. And, well, we've, we've kind of done that in New Zealand forever, mate. And Joel stood up, he pulled his suspenders up, and he pointed this guy down and he said, you know, I've travelled the world, I've been your country three times, and he called us out as one of the most overgrazed nations in the world. I was, my hands went up in the air. I thought, I thought this guy's great. And still coming back to nobody knows what overgrazing is. We all think it's just animal numbers. It's the age of the grass we're grazing on. As soon as we graze a juvenile baby grass, it's detrimental to the landscape. And animals aren't designed for that too. You, you see a dairy cow with the squirts, it's eating a 20-day-old grass. That's because it's not – it's just not compatible. So – I really believe the potential in our grazing systems is just untouched. You know, most most people um, who begin to transform their grazing practices, let's say from very seldom move or set stock where the animals are there permanently, to a mob grazing where you're mobbing and moving them regularly, the rest of the farm is on recovery then. You've always got a buffer. You've got lots of plant material um, above ground, below ground, root systems, and um, this ability to, to trample the surplus into the ground, most people are able to double their stocking rate, that's the number of animals they run per acre, in 12 months. When they switch to a lesser outside input model, more of a management-intensive model where um, the, you know, you're basically mimicking nature with these, with these mobs. So, that's the that's the thing I guess that I'm a little challenged with. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question um, clearly, but that's that's the biggest challenge I've seen. And you know, half a million people saw us on Country Calendar. We've only had 100% positive feedback from it. That's that's been great, but we didn't. Um, we thought we were going to be super busy with um, you know the grazing work that we did after it. Just nothing nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It's the I think we sold out nine introduction to market gardening events last year. People were just, you know, on it. How can I grow a little bit of income? How can I grow more food, you know, vegetables? Um, We've got this generational thing of, um, you know, just put on nitrogen, chew it out. um, And that's that's my – I kind of finish up my measure of how far we've come – Away from following a natural system, with with our with our herbivores that we've now got a fence off the waterways and plant riparian, and at, at the at the fertilizer at the balance 
sustainability wards were at, most of the farms had just, you know, some really nice riparians. Now, well done. I'm not, I'm not dissing it, but remember in nature, those bison, they used to go to the river. And nobody's talking about how they're grazing on the farm. I've no, you know, events like this that we went to, nobody's talking about how they're grazing. Mm. And, yeah. and, and I've just seen remarkable results abroad. Like, you know, I do a lot of work in, in New South Wales, Victoria, and Northern California, especially North California, people that have begun grazing holistically, which is, again, mobbing your animals up on a more recovered grass so you have a, an ability to trample some of the plants, more of the plants, depending on your timing. And the regeneration is just phenomenal seeing in drought country um, the regeneration. Very, um, you know, just gives me so much hope. That, uh, we, I think we can turn around the world's problems in, in agriculture, and some people say really fast. Joel reckons in 10 years we can sequester all the carbon back in the ground if we've begun, you know, with our, with our herbivores. And it's the thing we've just got to begin, not be worried what the neighbours think, not be worried what the fertiliser rep thinks, you know. The boys at the pub, doesn't matter what they think, you know. Oh, I love it. It's such a, I love the optimistic uh, viewpoint and solution focused and it, particularly in Taranaki to, to not be anti-dairy or pro-dairy or actually like understand what holistically works for, for everyone. Um, yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful well, space. I, I, I love dairy. We, we just hosted um, for the second time David Asher, the, you know, the world's leading natural cheesemaker. And again, this may highlight you know, he he he, made, he did a five-day cheese-making course with um, le legal raw milk from Beach Road Milk down the road from us. And in five days, he, we had students from all over Australasia. He made 50 different types of cheese. Wow. Now, you know, we've got all of these old cheese factories in Taranaki. They're all closed down. You know, we can, we've got all this dairy production going on. We could be the mecca of artesian cheese. Holistic management, you know, we're, we're a non-brittle environment here because it rains a lot. We could be the, you know, as Joel Salton would say, the um, uh, an international destination for people to, to come to um, because of, um, well, we've got the mountain, we've got the beaches, but imagine if it was we're on the world map for artesian cheese and, you know, added value and people could see farms where there was stacked enterprises and just regeneration and, you know, and, and to, for me, the things like run off into the, into the river and that, that's just not, a, that's just not something that would happen in a, uh, in a, in a natural system. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What a beautiful place to end. I think, yeah, well, so What's much up? potential in Taranaki and, um, and, uh, and just thank you to, it's the kind of the farmers, the lifeblood of, of the world and the planet and everything we do. And I don't think they get enough thanks and support and awareness. So if you're listening to this, um, yeah, make sure you check out Robot Farms and Jody and the workshops and everything. I'm super excited to get along to one and, uh, and, and hopefully we can even get you up maybe to Auckland on the lodge or do something up this way as well with you. Yeah, thanks, Doug. So, so on our website, robotclum.com, the media page, we've got a lot of resources there, YouTube clips about our grazing, the market garden, interviews. Um, so when this one's released, we'll stack, we'll put it up there too. But yeah, robotclum.com, media page, heaps more for you to get your teeth stuck into. 
Oh, fantastic. I'll, we'll, uh, I'll follow along there closely and um, yeah, really appreciate your time, Jody. Pleasure. Thanks for having us on your podcast. Appreciate it. Beautiful. Well, I'll I'll, uh, end it there, and um, I'll send. I'll let let you know when the when it's up. And um, yeah, we've got a cool sustainable lodge up, luxury lodge up here with Permaculture Organic Gardens, and it's great to do an event up here with you. And it's such a big market out of Auckland. Remind me where you are. We're in Tiari, just an hour fifteen north of Auckland. Nice. How far from Tiaro Beach are you? <laughs> About five minutes. It's a good surf as well. You have to bring the board. Um, yeah. So when when I worked for Kong in, in 2001, they were in Kaiwaka. Oh, neat. Yes. Yep, so Tiaro Point, Forestry, and uh, Waipu Beach when it was big. Yeah, Waipu. Yeah. Point. Um, nice. Oh, it's been good this week too. I, we had Kelly Slater out at the golf course here and um, – but it's interesting you're talking about the, the, the profitability because I'm trying to work with a guy down the road who's got an organic Hereford cow farm, I think, and looking at combination options and ways to monetize. Yeah. The other ways to monetize the farm, you know, like glamping and, 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 and that's why I was interested to talk to you about the microgreens and maybe doing some other stuff or even, I don't know, trial hemp crops or something. But, um, yeah, to, to help those farms, I think it's really exciting. Yeah, you know, my, so my my idea of a sustainable dairy farm because you know, and I've I've worked across you know a lot of these farms, so either fencing or crafting horning over winter. So I, I know the farmers, their landscapes really well. My idea of a sustainable dairy farm is um, that they turn a majority of their cows into beef cows because a, 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 a lactating animal has much higher needs. And can't do the regeneration. Also, a baby animal can't do the regeneration. A, a, a calf and a lamb, and you know our, our sheep farmers are only paid to do lamb. They're penalised to do ho- um, mutton or hogger. Mm. Lambs can't do no regeneration. They've got baby teeth, tiny little stomachs. They're just t- little teenagers. A dry stock beef cow. That's the ticket to doing the regeneration. So, my, my if I had a dairy farm. I'd have um, 100 cows for milking. I'd have 500 beef cows. And the beef cows, I'd mob them tight and move them three times a day onto the, the more recovered grasses and just trample it, uh, put all the residual down, and then give it the recovery it needs. It could, it could be 90 days, 120 days. And then I would be grazing the dairy cows and the, the next time round on all that regeneration that the beef cows have done. And then behind the behind both of those outfits, I would have chicken systems, you know, pastured poultry. There'd be a market garden um, right by the. Usually, the the best site for a market garden on a dairy farm is the campsite by the milking shed. Because the the cows have camped there for a hundred years, put all their fertility there, yeah. and it's you know, um, so you know, stacked stacked enterprise with the market garden, um, just. Yeah, lots of potential, and that's exactly what Joel Salatin's doing on his farm. You check out that Polyfaces movie, man. It's really positive. Oh, I can't wait to share that, and I'll share this with the um, the farmer down the road. And um, yeah, we'd love to get look at. I don't know what the best way is to get look at getting you up for a talk up here because we've got a great database and, and best mates with um, like Tom Hisham from Orphans Kitchen, and he does all, all the work with Kalmana Gardens fundraising for them. And 
So I know I know we could get a lot of people out from Auckland and do some events with you up here. I'm I'm, I'm sure, but um, yeah, because we'll I know got plenty in plate. Yep, uh, so Auckland's not far though. If we get on a plane, keep in touch. Um, also, if you ever hear of TEDx being in Auckland, something like that, give, give me a holler too. We just missed them when they came through New Plymouth last July. I was, I was actually abroad. Oh, to to speak at or to attend or I mean, it'd be amazing yeah, if you could... yeah, to, yeah to speak at. Yeah, yeah, I know some of the guys um, from there, so I could. Yeah, it's just getting the word out. I mean, that'd be an amazing platform for you. Flip. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, friends. I know friend Cam spoke on hemp at the last one, and a few other people. Yeah. I know um Richie Hart. Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll I'll try and link you up with a couple of people there if there's anything else I can um. Do yeah, that'd be fantastic. Awesome. But appreciate your time. That was amazing. Yeah, all good. Had hey, nice to meet you, and um, hope you're good. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get you out for a wave too. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful place, man. Where you live in, it's very yeah, nice. I know. Between Taranaki and Tiari, it's uh, it was tough to beat. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, I've been back surfing this year because for about eight years I wasn't. Yeah. And got myself a little five six twenty eight liters, and my, I'm trying to have two surfs. Well, I am I'm two surfs a week minimum. And yeah, it was part of my DNA. I just, you know, the joke was farming's a new surfing, but uh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing replaces it. That, oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Right, right, thanks for your time. Much also. love. Likewise, brother. Yeah. Speak soon. Yep. See you. See you. Well, what an episode. And that little bonus piece at the end there on dairy farming and how we can make it really sustainable, I think. It's just so fantastic. There's so much hope and inspiration. And I love Jody's optimistic perspective on how we can sequester carbon back into the soils, the ocean, if we do it right. There is hope. And it's uh, people like Jody that are leading the way and inspiring and teaching all of us that there is a better way of farming, of eating and growing, of living. And uh, like Jody, hopefully, you can fit in a few surfs in between. <laughs> you don't want to wear yourself out trying to save the planet. As you said, you can't be green if you're in the red. So hope you got plenty from it. If you love the episode, particularly if you know people in the kind of real conscious space who want to work in, in gardening and health and growing food um, or who would just find this an inspiring episode or who may want to connect and, and check out Jody's workshops, make sure you check out his website. He's got workshops coming up in Bali, Australia, New Zealand, all around the place. Hopefully we'll get him up to somewhere near Auckland for a talk soon as well. It's it's so fantastic and inspiring. And make sure you check out all the links in the show notes too. And again, if you enjoyed the episode, the best thing would be leave a review, a comment, share it, and um, sign up for the email list. I'm going to be giving out some great uh, nutrients, some Be Pure supplements, some invitations to workshops, to events, all kinds of goodies, and all my latest podcast books inspiring music to get you pumped up on life your daily dose your weekly dose of vitamin d o u n g think less experience more till next time hope you dug it